Philadelphia, what is up? And welcome into another edition of the Halftime Adjustments Podcast. My name is Charlie Gross, and we are part of the Built in Buffalo Podcasting Network. I've got another crossover for you today. Really excited about this one. This is Stephanie Stradley from the Houston Chronicle, beat writer for the Houston Texans. I had a really awesome discussion with Stephanie, so I hope you enjoy that. And with that said, let's get right into it. This week on our second crossover podcast of the summer, we have Houston Texans writer for the Houston Chronicle, Stephanie Stradley is with me today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing awesome. I really appreciate you uh, coming on to talk with me uh, about the Texans. I think they're very interesting. Like I said, unfortunately, I think a lot of it is for the wrong reasons, certainly probably from their, their point of view, but I think it's a fascinating situation. It, it certainly is. I mean, uh, you know, 2020 was a difficult season. They had an unorthodox choice as their general manager after firing their coach after week four of the season where they kept losing games and difficult schedule. And um, it was pretty much chaos last year. Um, and then everybody thought that the Houston Texans would finally get a new start. Uh, that there was a discussion that the next GM was going to be done by a committee and that, you know, here's this fresh new start. And then um, Jack Easterby stayed, which people had questions about him after numerous uh, unresolved questions were raised in, in various media articles. And then um, he brought in Casario, who is well regarded, regarded but um, the, it was said that the GM will decide what, whether Jack Easterby stayed or went, and he stayed. And so there is now a kind of an unorthodox approach to putting together a team. You know, you had a team that had no top draft picks, difficulties with their salary cap, unhappy veterans, well, where do you go? And, you know, there was a feeling at the end of last season that depending on the choice, you know, players like J.J. Watt would remain in having a core of J.J. Watt and Deshaun Watson going forward with a, a new, you know, a new approach. Well, that wasn't happening and so they've blown the whole thing up and we get to see where they're going but it's it's an unorthodox choice it's hard to know who the leader of the texans really is i was Um, was just about to say that i think it's so similar to my perception of some other teams like the jets with the johnson brothers and and when gase was there and i think for me that's the main reason I think that teams don't succeed is because the owner has this really weird sort of front office dynamic where you have the coach and GM kind of competing uh, to stay in power. And this situation. And I don't know. I don't know that that's what this particular situation is. I mean, the, the difficulty is the Texans went from a, an extremely strong coach model, like, where you're giving, like, it went, it was just a strange situation because the owner 
fired the previous GM, Brian Gain, who you know. Right. <laughs> uh, and in a very strange, like he had not been with the team for very long, did it at a strange time of the year, uh, and then tried to poach Casario then, and then there was all sorts of tampering charges maintained. And then there was this view that maybe, okay, you'll get a new GM to come in, and they decided on this strange GM by committee model uh, and then to create accountability, they named Bill O'Brien the GM, but he was the most reluctant person ever to do it. You know, like he, he I guess he was GM in name only because he was like, you know, really, no, it's not just me. It's, it's a committee of people. I'm just named that. And then, you know, he gets fired early in the season, which is, it makes it very difficult to do that early in the season. I mean, that's why that's typically not done. And they said the reason for doing it early is so that they could get a head start on their future. But then they were one of the last teams to hire a coach. And they ended up getting the same GM that they wanted to get in the first place. So there's not a lot of trust in it. And there's a completely revised roster. So you know, I guess they believe in what they're doing. And I think the choice of David Cully was a choice of here's a person who is on board with the way that we want to build a team. And the way that we want to build a team is, is kind of for the, I mean, it's hard to say for sure from the outside because I'm not a part of these discussions and I'm only deducing things based on what they say publicly, but it's kind of like this, we want to be the Patriots, but the nice Patriots <laughs> where everything is, is awesome and, and there are no problems. And, you know, we're going to just keep t- taking one day at a time and build us a, a team from the ground up. And, right. and don't, don't mention anything that's bad or wrong or that you have questions about because you are a part of the cult or you're not a part of the cult. Right. Yeah, it seems very convoluted, and I I think I really sort of because of those like articles about Easterby, I really started paying attention. I believe it was the season-ending press conference, or maybe it was the introductory press conference. Yes. Uh, Nick Casario. Where I was just like, "What is Cal McNair talking about?" It. I mean, yeah, it's very. It just seems you're right. Weird. It's just very weird. I don't know how else to say it. Well, I mean, I am. There are so many good people who work for the Houston Texans who are trying to do a good job. And I guess there is this feeling that an outsider has co-opted the ownership of the Texans to his own end and, and that the owner believes in him. And, you know, I don't know if you've watched, um, watch the show Ted Lasso. Uh, No, I have not. It's a great show. And the concept behind the show is if you have a culture where everybody is supporting each other and encouraging each other, that eventually this leads to a winning culture. Mm. Now, Now, without too many spoilers, this approach is isn't doesn't work very well in the show and you know part of the discussion of that is that careers are short 
And as a professional, you want to be treated like a professional and you want winning to be prioritized. And there is a feeling among some that winning isn't prioritized by the Houston Texans, that there are other issues that are prioritized in a higher way. Now, they would take exception to that. But it's hard to have trust in a leadership model when any questions about that aren't answered. They don't even try to answer. It's like, hey, like, like as it was said in the introductory press conference, we want our fans to trust that what we are doing is right. But as, as Andre Johnson famously said, you know, the Texans are known for wasting players' careers. And, you know, I think that there's a disconnect between what the team thinks is the most important thing and what fans want. And what fans want is a professionally run team. There were some questions from the Sports Illustrated articles about whether they were being run in a professional way. And in the meantime, there's lots of high quality people who have been hired by the Texans who are working their hardest to make this work. And maybe it could, but at, at, in the short term, it doesn't feel good. It's, it never feels good to be told, trust us to do what's right. You just watched a lot of stuff that wasn't right. And we're going to just keep on preaching enthusiasm and positivity when we haven't acknowledged basic harms that people have felt and unresolved issues that people are afraid of. Right. That, that makes sense. So let me ask you about Nick Casario because I know that from my understanding is that he is friends with Easterby, but sure. at, at the same time, is he really in on that? Cause you, you'd think that he would be professional. He Patriots like, I don't know, 12 years or something with the Patriots. You, you would think that. So is he kind of, you know, absorbed into this message or is he just kind of, you know, Hey, I'm the GM, you know, like I'm just going to draft players and what's that dynamic like? Well, I, I, I can't speak about that. I think, I think part of it is, you know, he, every person, whether it's a player, um, executive, whoever, they all have positives and, and negatives. And his positive is that, you know, he's really player personnel. He's really into, um, team building, he is well regarded. But the flip side is he's been mostly in the Patriots system. Um, people in his role there do not have a forward facing role. Um, he's coming into a situation where fans are completely turned off on the Patriot way of being. Like, cause we've been hearing this stuff for years from Bill O'Brien and there's a high level of skepticism that Patriots way talk works in an environment where um, there's no Bill Belichick or Tom Brady, you know, like that, that players are willing to take some level of abuse and work when they, when they think that, you know, Hey, the payoff of this is, you know, Brady's going to take us to the Super Bowl, and, Bill Belichick has forgotten more about football than we will ever know. Right. Yeah. Like you can endure a lot of stuff if you believe in the people 
who are running the show. And in other places where kind of this very kind of suffering is great mindset comes from, um, it hasn't worked. People resent it. Like if players have a choice of where they go, do they want to be in a situation where the front office looks like chaos and um, the head coach looks like a short timer? David Cully, there are people rooting for David Cully. He seems like a really great guy. People have great things to say about him in all the stops that he has. Uh, I don't want to be against somebody because they are an older coach, because as Bruce Arians has showed, older coaches can sometimes do great things. But at the same time, this is a team run by a first-time head coach, a first-time GM, uh, and likely the, a football, the president of football operations that people know his name, and that's a problem. Right. Who, who may be the most influential person in the building that most people don't outside the building, at least don't trust. And there's questions about inside the building, whether he should be trusted too. I mean, there really hasn't been a lot of work. I mean, it is work to engender trust and, you know, a team you can like say like, let's throw off the haters and blah, 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 blah. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't be actively alienating your fan base. And part of Cal McNair choosing Easterby's approach was choosing Easterby over the fans and not explaining why, other than just general statements that he's gifted, he's helpful. Some people who have worked with him in the past in limited roles liked him in that role. But then there's other questions. And so, you know, Frankly, the way that works with Nick Casario and and Jack Easterby is Jack Easterby got rid of a lot of helpful people in the building. You know, people for whatever reasons he wanted out of the building. And so Nick Casario, the only person he really knows well in the building is Jack Easterby. He's reliant on him, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And he's the person who got him paid. There is no other role in sports where Jack Easterby and Nick Casario would be making this much money for the contract period that they have, right? Okay, I see what you're saying. So, like, they, they're, like, of course they're going to be wedded together. Now, the question is, okay, they are likely to be in charge for a while, because of their contract terms. They're very influential with the owner. The owner thinks the world about them. So is there a way forward with the Texans where this can be successful? Maybe there is. At this point, short term, the roster is full of, of, the roster is worse than an expansion team. It's funny that you say that because that's how I was going to categorize it in a way. I, to me, it looks like they were, you know, they're back to being their first year as, a, you know, certainly with, with the coach, as you mentioned, a guy who I think is well-regarded and he was with the Bills for a little while, but not certainly out of left field for me. I know like Leslie Frazier was supposedly – a finalist, and obviously, I think it was very well known that Deshaun Watson wanted to be enemy. 
And then all of a sudden, here comes David Cully. You know, it's almost like this is just a throwaway year, for lack of a better term. The, the roster's bad. They didn't really have much draft capital issues with the franchise quarterback. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's tough to find, I think, a lot of positives from an outsider's point of view about the franchise, about the roster. Um, and it sounds like people in Houston kind of feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's just uh, – I, I mean, I think people feel a lot of different ways, but I think the biggest thing was it's very disappointing to think that you're going to get a positive change in a new direction and then get more of – in the first press conference, Nick Casario says, you know, you know, everything's going to be about – team before self and sacrificing for the team. And, you know, that's what 2020 was. Everything was a sacrifice. And, you know, sometimes kind of fetishizing suffering, we're done with that. Like fans are done with that. Some players were done with that. They were done with that direction. And now it's kind of like, well, we're going to reboot the Patriot way, but this time we're doing it nice. (laughs) And, you know, Maybe they can make that work, but not, you know, picking a bunch of non-experienced people isn't a high probability move. Um, Of course, the Watson situation um, makes things a little bit harder on top, obviously, Uh, just the unresolved nature of, of it and kind of it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. There is a question about whether he shows up to report when things are mandatory. Um, I was just going to say, for in terms of that situation, you know, there's I think there's been a lot of speculation. I think um, from just general NFL media sure. that there's a possibility he won't even play, whether that's because he's on the commissioner's exempt list or, as you said, maybe he he holds out. I don't know if there's any way to know that in May, but I, I guess what's would your gut feeling telling you if, if you have one, I guess, is just... The- well, I mean, it's... I think there's a range of possibilities. I mean, we know more about the cases of just the publicly reported information. There is private information that the lawyers know that um, might change people's minds one way or another in different directions. And we can't really know those things. So that like just kind of talking through the known issues and the unknowable issues and all that, I think a big unknowable issue is how the NFL is going to react to a lot of this information. I mean, they're the kind of the wild card. They act as kind of bad leverage over the situation because of how unpredictable they are. In recent years, I think maybe in part because of just the general push for criminal justice reform, you know, there's this, it's kind of a weird tension where the NFL has put themselves out there as wanting to be part of the solution to criminal justice reform and urging um, that to happen throughout the country. And that is a little bit at odds with 
what happened started in 2006 with, you know, hey, the justice system isn't harsh enough and playing in the NFL is a privilege and we are going to do punishment on top of what the criminal justice system does because I guess they don't believe in it. And so the evolution of that after many investigations that people had serious questions about, um, the way that they've been tending to do things more recently is we have our own investigatory arm run by Lisa Friel, an an ex-district attorney who has worked on violence against women issues in the past. And we will be monitoring both civil and potential criminal litigation, but at the same time, we're going to be conducting our own investigation. And that they try now not to do too much stuff until the investigation's over, particularly for something where um, the parties are disagreeing about what the, the underlying facts are. Right, but, yeah. but as it relates to the, the commissioner's exempt list, that doesn't kick in until the season, right? So what, and, you know, since a lot of this stuff has become very public, Watson has lost some endorsements. Uh, his future is uncertain as it relates to his playing career. And he might decide, hey, look, you know, maybe, you know, my trade value is bad right now. Uh, I'm not going to lose a season and I'm just going to show up and get paid and make the Texans make a decision. Or he might say, hey, I have enough money in the bank. I remember being broke. I don't want to play for a team that is, you know, some good players and a bunch of random players. Uh, I'm going to sit this one out because if I get injured this season, that hurts my future, you know, more than, you know, sitting out sure. and, yeah. and losing money. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I mean, like I said, it's fascinating. Um, there's so many different, different layers to the, to the Texans. Let's get into the team a little bit. But, the other point about that is, you know, he could play, he could pull a Dwayne Brown. It's harder to do it now because the, the penalties are so much worse, but he could show up just in time for him to get a, a, a league year of, of employment. So he shows up mid season. So there's different times where he could show up in the season and they could play him or not play him or whatever they choose to do. Right. Right. Like I think it's, so it's just about the halfway mark. Is that correct? Like it's, it's maybe a little bit beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, just fascinating. And I think, you know, looking at the roster, there certainly are some some good players, but as you said, there's a lot of just random sort of stuff. And going I like the players. I actually like the players. Like if if, if we're taking about all of the weirdness with their structure and all that, I like a lot of the players on the offensive side of the ball. I like a lot of the coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball. I don't know what kind of offense they're planning on running. And generally speaking, the best offenses in the league have a very defined philosophy on what they want to do and that it's meshed very well with their offensive line and they have a quarterback. Right. Um, So, you know, maybe if you had Watson, and this coaching staff, 
and the players on that side of the ball, you, you might be able to do a lot of stuff. You might be able to do a lot of stuff even if um, you don't have Watson. Um, that's more of a question, but they actually have some pretty decent players on the offensive side of the ball. The question on defense is more, boy, they don't have – like they have a lot of – solid, decent players that you might want on a defense, but not too many stars. And there's questions about whether Levy Smith's scheme is going to work in the modern NFL. Right, because as I look through the list, I certainly recognize a lot of the names on the roster, but as you said, I don't think they're they're necessarily top-level player, top-tier players. So, well, I mean, it, if, if you're looking to the most generous view of what Casario is doing, I think it's actually not, not a bad thought. The, the thought is, hey, look, some players have just been given their spots in recent years, and we want people to compete for playing time. We, and if you get a number of, of kind of – if you're looking throughout the league and trying to get value from players, you're looking for a lot of players who aren't rookies anymore, but aren't old and they have gotten some decent players. And maybe if you can get them all playing together very hard, they can be better than they are actually by scheme. So, you know, you can almost see some of that with the way that new England has developed their defenses over the years. Sure. Yeah where they create stars partially through scheme and being smart and, you know, tough, smart, da, da, da. But that is really hard and you have to have the right coaches in place. And we don't know a lot about a lot of these people. Right. I mean, I I would say that a lot of the Patriots success, you know, I've had a certainly a good look at it is uh, is scheme driven. You know, they, they value coverage and they run, I you know, they call it their amoeba package, I believe. But they're really great at just sort of timing blitzes and playing coverage on the back end. Yeah. And that's kind of all it is. Yeah. Now, I, I don't – they also have, have a record of if you're looking where they spend money, they spend money on corners. Right. Uh, I'm not very enthusiastic about this secondary – uh, you know, there's still so much time before the season and we'll see what they can do. And, and, you know, they, they've tried, like, I, I do give them credit in trying to get more teachers at different spots as assistant coaches, you know, cause you know, if you look at the history of the Patriots, they typically have not had very large staffs. Like they work really hard. They bring in really smart grad students in. They get people to work really hard and try to figure things out, but they're not necessarily the best teachers. And, you know, O'Brien's staff was very small and not very um, experienced as far as NFL staffs go. So, there, there had been some questions about whether they were doing a good job developing players. Well, I mean, there are some people on both the offensive and defensive staff where you're like, okay, those guys have had success in other situations. And then the question is, can you bring 
in all these different people with all these different backgrounds and make something that makes sense and is not a mismatch because I mean, just thinking back at the early years of the Texans, you know, they had Charlie Casterly as the GM, they got Dom Capers as the coach. Eventually they kind of butted heads back and forth on some things. Their staff was a bunch of very experienced people, but from very different backgrounds. And sometimes the ways that they did things did not mesh very well together. And that created problems. And so when you have people from different, different backgrounds coming together as a staff without really one unifying person saying, yeah, let's bring, you know, bring the gang together. You have to make sure that you're all on one page and teaching the same things and, and really strongly making a, a, a direct, and that is a challenge you know just because it's a challenge doesn't mean that they can't do it but I mean there are there are some good elements the question is is all the other stuff just going to overshadow it right and I I think that's one of the only things that you can really do with with a roster like this is teach the players especially the young players you're giving everybody a chance to compete you're hoping for the best and and the work that this staff does, you know, they may not be here in a couple of years, and another staff may reap the benefits of, of that teaching. But, yeah, I think the Patriots, honestly, and, and Bill O'Brien being from there, they're not great at drafting. I think they're more comfortable at bringing in those veterans. And, and Well, and, and that's, that's the bigger question for – building for the future here, like one of the main issues that they have with, you know, like the people that are a little critical about Casario's approach is like, okay, great. You're going to get all this competition in and you're going to work really hard to win this year. And are, are you doing that at the expense of young players? Because you have like all these guys on one year contracts, they're going to be gone if they're any good. Right. Right. And then, then your draft class wasn't very big. You didn't really pick up a bunch of undrafted free agents. And in a straight up competition, it's really hard for a rookie to break through. You know, if you're, if you're into winning now, it's really hard to get them the reps. And like 2020 was a disaster year. There were all sorts of young players who did work that you were like, boy, I would like to see this guy get more reps. They didn't get them. And so is 2021 another season where it's like, okay, Patriot way, we're going to really try really hard to win, but we don't really have the elements in place and we're not going to develop our younger players. Yeah. And if you don't have Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, as you said earlier, I, that approach to my knowledge hasn't really worked at all in the NFL. Well, and the other part of it is just numbers. You know, you can find – you can find really good players in low rounds or undrafted players. But part of that is just a numbers game where you're bringing in lots of people. And if you're doing just churn, 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 you may not get an Arian Foster. Like, I don't know if, if, if Arian Foster was coming into the league in 2021, would he find his way to the Houston Texans? And I think the answer is no. And, and it may be that they would be fine with the answer being no, because he's not their kind of guy, but he's one of the best players 
ever played for the Houston Texans and one of the best players I've ever seen goal line. Right. Absolutely. So given all this, it, it sounds like the, the picture this year for the Texans isn't really rosy unless, you know, a whole lot of things come together in the exact correct way. I think it's pretty difficult to find more than a couple wins on the schedule. What are your thoughts about the schedule and, and sort of how this year is going to go for the team? You know, I think to some degree it's too early to say. Uh, certainly, I think, you know, they are listed as having one of the hardest schedules, but part of that is, A, they're not playing themselves. Um, <laughs> and s- schedule strength is difficult to really bet too hard on because, to, you know, actual s- schedule strength after, like, after you've played a season actually does matter, but projected – you know, teams change from, from year to year. Um, but at this point in the season, it's so early to tell. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if you're just looking at probabilities and just looking at the roster and the uncertainties and the turnover, like this is a very minor point, but, you know, they have a new locker room staff. That's a staff that was well-regarded. J.J. Watt gave them a shout-out after they got fired. And they had gone through multiple different, you know, coaching groups, right? Well, those are the guys, they're, they're kind of like the, you know, like secretaries of the world where, you know, the right. secretaries are the people that actually know how things work and are the helper people to new people. Well, that's how locker room staff is to some degree. And so you're bringing in a whole new locker room staff, like new coaches, in most positions with exception of a few and usually that many new people doesn't come together and they probably don't want them to come together too much because you know draft picks right yeah i I mean that makes sense like they should call this team the houston cannon fodder Like, if you are an experienced, like, J.J. Watts saw what the situation was, and he got out. You know, Watson saw what the situation was and wanted out. There are pl- uh, experienced players with the team that may not stay with the team um, over the course of, you know, of the off season, where it may make more sense for them to go elsewhere and be accommodated by the team that way. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty, but the probabilities of a lot of different things would obviously not, you know, suggest great things. I mean, right now they are a home dog to the Jets. Oh, yeah. So that, I was wondering about that. Like, that that's the kind of the game where, you know, because the Jets aren't, you know, you could maybe say the Jets are a little bit ahead, I guess, I suppose, but – Certainly. Well, the, the flip side, the flip side of that is, you know, even the Houston Texans with some really cr- crummy rosters over the years, um, stole some games with some decent players who were not star players, but were solid players and had a chip on their shoulder and played well together. And I don't know about you, but you know, there's any number of teams that you've been 
on over the years and some had stars and some had just a bunch of try hard guys and you know try hard guys can win games sure it's hard it's hard it's much easier if you're like okay i'm just going to give the ball to this guy and this guy's <laughs> going to get a touchdown like that's easier um but yeah if you have a bunch of hard working try hard guys you will and, and focus on special teams you probably know that from many miserable years oh you you focus on those things where you can steal wins and that's what teams do when they don't have a lot of stars sure you know i think and that was something i think we were used to in buffalo and even in 2017 kind of they totally backed into the playoffs and they had a lot of guys honestly who were you know try hard guys they traded some of like a darius during the season stuff like that and it I think there's a ceiling to that type of a team, but they can certainly win games. I, I don't think sure in the NFL every kind of every game is close. You know, there's there's not many blowouts um, anymore. So Although I I can also say um, this team could be like absolutely miserable too. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, that's like, it's a, it's, it's a, like, they even, like, last year, even with, like, they had one of the worst defenses in the league last year uh, because their secondary was so terrible and they didn't have any pass rush other than JJ Watt. So it's hard to think, oh, well, this deep, like, and they were atrocious last year. Like, it didn't matter how well Deshaun Watson played when you have a defense that terrible. Right. You can only do so much. Yeah. So they had, like, but they had amazing quarterback play from him. If you looked at just what the offense did, they should have won more games. But the defense made all opposing quarterbacks look like the second coming of Joe Montana or something like, like the opposing, the opposing quarterback ratings were ridiculously high, right? No matter who the quarterback was. And that was a team that had JJ Watt. So now it's like no JJ Watt, um, a bunch of random people that are going to compete against each other doing a new scheme. Right. It has the potential to get out of control quickly. <laughs> For a defensive coordinator who, you know, had trouble with coaching in college. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, the thought is, well, maybe he'll be better only doing defensive coordinating work and that he'll get back on his stride. Yeah, I mean, he has a track record. You, you, I don't think you can deny that, but he had great players too, you know, yeah. in Chicago. So I'm curious as to your – what you think of the Bills. I mean, obviously, AFC championship game. Uh, you had a, a good seat, I would imagine, to Josh Allen's ridiculous attempt at a lateral in 2019. What do you think about the Bills? I mean, what's your perception is – you know, are they prime for a regression? Do you think it's they're the real deal? Where do you fall on that? 
Uh, I'm intrigued in the way that they have built their team. You know, it's intriguing to me because like, how do you build a team that has been miserable for a number of years? And how do you develop a new quarterback in an environment where all your mistakes are on the biggest stages? Like developing a quarterback from scratch is extraordinarily hard to do. Um, like I, I, one of my thoughts has always been with, you know, with the actual expansion Texans as opposed to expansion Texans 2.0, uh, <laughs> is there any quarterback who could have succeeded under those circumstances? Like if Peyton Manning had been, you know, leading the, the Texans, then could he have overcome it? Could a better veteran overcome it? And, and, you know, cause I, I have this thing I call the Andre Andre Johnson rule, which is, most players need to be in the right situation to succeed, but some players are so good that they're what they do great would show no matter how poor the fit in the situation is. And Andre Johnson was that kind of player. And if he doesn't make it into the hall of fame, that would be atrocious because he overcame so much to be the player that he was. And one of the most dominant players of his era but for the quarterback position in particular, you can't hide. You can't have like, you know, you can't have too many bad snaps, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. All, like you are making mistakes in front of the world and, and can you get beyond that? And to me, that's the most interesting part of, of the Bills. But I will also say that the Houston Texans are really trying their best to make me not like football. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. Like, like I, I love football more than most people I know, but after 2020 and the misery of, of these last couple months of just what the news is and it's been just really hard to go, boy, they're really making it hard to like them. Like, I want to like the Texans. I want to like, enjoy watching the NFL. But it's like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is just hurtful for everybody involved. Sure. And I think Bill's fans listening know exactly what you're talking about. You know, sometimes I think, where would we be if they didn't hire Sean McDermott? And, you know, he, my understanding is he wasn't even their first choice. And at the last second, they kind of switched to him. I just, you know, I, I personally had lost certainly um, some, of, some of my passion for football in, the, in, you know, that 2010 to 2018 range. It just became like, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, and it's a good thing this year they have one extra game. Yeah, oh, yeah. Maybe. Like there, there's nothing like, you know, if, if you're a fan of a great team, you just want the playoffs to happen as quick as possible so you're, the players don't get hurt. Right. But I don't see how baseball and basketball writers do it with so many, so many games because going through a miserable 16-game season is, is just 
a bad feeling. 17 games is just like, oh, please make it end. Please make it end. And, and, you know, and you were talking about kind of like happy accidents. Right. You know, where you thought something bad was going to happen, but it was actually good. You know, and there's any number of those stories for many years for pretty much every team out there. And I hope there is some sort of happy accident with the Texans. I hope, and I am, I am affirmatively encouraging the Texans to have a better relationship with their fans, not just like, Hey, happy, fun, joy. You know, we're going to, we're going to say that you're the best fans and we're going to give you gifts and we're going to no, like be real, like actually be real. You know, it's very difficult to hear a Casario press conference, not because he's a bad guy, but it's the same new England talk where he he's going out of his way, not to answer just basic questions. And you can be that kind of, like, I don't think he intends to sound arrogant in doing that. Right. Um, and I guess you can do that if you're Bill Belichick, but it just feels bad after what people have experienced. And I think part of communication is just knowing what your audience is. And if your audience has gone through a bunch of stuff and you say you are important to me, but you keep doing and saying things that are not, that's hard. And, and I, I really hope that they get real about some unresolved issues. Like right now, I have no idea who is the leader of the Texans. Yeah. Like they, they will say it's not, it's not Easterby. Okay. Well then who is it? Casario will say that he's in charge of personnel. Okay. Well, who's, and, and David Cully is in charge of coaching. Who's in charge of the team? It sounds to me like it's Easterby. Yeah. It does, but then they say it's not him. So right. who, who is accountable? Who's responsible? Who's going, who affirmatively is going like, you know, I guess their point of view is, well, winning will solve everything. Well, you know what? It's easier to win when you have people on board and they trust you. And there's ways of doing that. And what they've done so far is not that. Right. It sounds like they need more transparency to a point. Yes. And being real, being real, recognizing, right. recognizing that the same old, hey, you're the best fans in the NFL and let's give you gifts and, you know, you know, we're enthusiastic about the season. Well, you're the only ones. You're the only ones. <laughs> right. well, it, it's, I mean, this is really hard. There are people who are day one season ticket holders and, you know, they feel completely unheard by the team and they feel like a buffoon if they support the team after what's gone on for years. And that's a terrible feeling. You're, you're like, I know that aspirationally they said that we want to be, you know, the best team in the NFL and we want to win and we want to win the right way. Well, you know, the first step is stop saying things and doing things that are embarrassing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, 
I think as a fan, you want to have, certainly I've seen from the Buffalo side of it, you want to have some pride in your team and you want to have people in positions where you, we know they're not going to tell us everything about the draft or free agency. But to me, I think that if you watch a Brandon Bean press conference, he's pretty honest. You know, he's not going to say, okay, we want to draft, you know, Greg Newsom, but he said, we, you know, we need to get better pass rush. What happened? They drafted two pass rushers. and, And so they've earned so much trust where now, if you talk to a bills fan, they just say, I trust him. I trust yes, him. Being. Yes. No, you know, and you get yelled at if you, if you question him now, like I'm being yelled at because I have the audacity, you know, to question a move Brandon Bean makes. And it's because he's engendered himself so much to the fan base and McDermott as well, obviously that they trust him. Yeah. And I, and I you know, there's so many different approaches to take. I mean, I think, there was a time it was a breath of fresh air in Houston where Daryl Morey was the um, GM of, of the Rockets. And he would just explain things like, look, this is what we're doing. You know, we're trying to increase our probabilities, Um, you know, and he would acknowledge some of the criticism head on like, okay, yeah, we understand this, that, and the other thing, but this is the reason why we did it. Now, could he say everything? No. Did he sometimes say too much? Maybe. (laughs) But it, I think the hardest thing about it all is just the whole issue of audience that, you know, Texan fans are rightfully angry as a group. I, I won't speak for everyone. And um, it's the hardest thing in the world is to communicate to people who are angry at you. And part of that is recognizing that they're angry recognizing that they want some things that they have not been experiencing, like just some basic transparency on things. And that if you are secure in who you are, you shouldn't have a problem with explaining your moves or you should feel more comfortable talking about the role that Jack Easterby has in your organization, other than just saying that he's gifted. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, Yeah, I just don't understand. And, and obviously I think it's, it obviously starts at the top, Yeah, you know, and and I'm not always a person who thinks that culture comes from the owner because, you know, the Pagula family owned the bills before Sean McDermott got here and the culture didn't get here until Sean McDermott did, but to the Pagula's credit, they have a collaborative GM and a coach and then they just get out of the way. Well, the get out of the way thing is a big deal because there is a concern among some that a, you know, like the the, the, the thought is that, you know, he's a good guy, but he wants to be too involved in the team on the day-to-day of the team and interferes with the day-to-day of the team and that he doesn't hire the right people. And that there's plenty of really good people that work for the Texans, but that having having a leadership team that is not on the same page as a lot of people just locally, like they just don't, they don't seem to 
care that, you know, like a lot of people in Houston work for very professional companies, like lots of Fortune 500 companies are here, right? Yeah. Um, they're very, as a group, a football savvy place. I mean, it's Texas, you know? Sure, yeah. So it, it grates a lot to have kind of the New England style arrogance of just trust us to do what's right, even though what's going on doesn't seem right. And when people raise questions with it, it's, well, there's misinformation. Well, can, can you be more direct with us? Like, don't, don't be saying we're the greatest fans ever and puffing up things when there's issues that you're just not discussing and just want to make everything bygones, which is because Casario wasn't here. So his approach is to say bygones. And then everybody else's approach is, well, um, you learn from mistakes. We're not going to tell you what we learned, but we learned. And <laughs> you need failure to succeed. And, you know, and building things is slow. And where do we get these messages from? We're not getting them from the team. We're getting them from a team executive that puts excuses on his Twitter feed in general retweets of various inspirational speakers. Like that's literally how we find out um, things about what his point of view is. Because that's all we know. Like it's not that we don't want to know. It's just, this is what we're given. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be frustrating. Well, yeah. I mean, you're given that. I mean, and it's a difficult time anyway because, you know, post-COVID and people's situations are different. I mean, it's just, you know how it is. Yeah. Well, before we, we wrap up this podcast, I have to ask, I think I know the answer, but I have to ask. <laughs> Yeah. I'm scared. I'm who scared. who do you think's gonna win the Bills Texans game? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you never know what's gonna happen, but well, I, know what's I, I mean, there. Okay, I will tell you. I I would say from a probability standpoint, it would definitely be the Bills, but you know. Yeah, you know, the past is fixed. The future has many alternative futures. There is an alternative future where Watson believes that he's not going to get traded this season and for the good of everyone decides that he is going to be there for his teammates, that he is going to play for the Houston Texans. And um, with the, the players that they have on their offense – and his abilities, they do great things. I mean, that is a potential alternative future that exists. And then the thought is, well, and if they still want to divorce after the season, then his, you know, you could trade him then. Um, Because I don't think that his legal issues are going to be resolved anytime soon, mostly because uh, the attorneys involved are very upfront about stuff and um, tactically uh, there are, there's a lack of trust between the, the lawyers. So it's really hard to get a resolution to a situation when all your business is on the streets. 
Right. So that makes sense. Uh, so, I mean, that is a theoretical possibility. Um, now, the other part of it is there's plenty of people who will say that that there is an extreme lack of trust in the Texans leadership. It's just a different leadership approach and their leadership approach is, you know, um, they only want a certain type of robotic player and, and, you know, work hard and blah, blah, blah. And they don't, they don't want people there that, that are anything other than they're very, you know, Eagle Scout people just like themselves. Right. And not, and you know, I mean, that is an approach to take to things, but then there's other people that don't buy into the whole idea of team before self who, who believe that to be the best contributor to a team, they have to take care of themselves as well. Yeah, and that makes sense, I mean, to a point, right? I mean, you, you're you no good to the team if you're not taking care of yourself, I guess, in a way. Or looking out for who you are as a person. Right. Now, And then the flip side is he's not going to play because his value would be decreased if he ended up getting some kind of um, injury that ends his career. And so that having a healthy non-season would be better for him than – a season where he risks serious injury with a, a team he and leadership he doesn't believe in. Yeah, I that I think that's pretty reasonable uh, coming you know from his point of view. And and the 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 thing that might make him come back or make it easier for him to come back is they kept Tim Kelly as their offensive coordinator and jumping in with the offensive line that he mostly knows and a number of wide receiver that he knows wouldn't be that hard. Right. <clears throat> uh, so before we, we wrap it up, is there anything else you wanted to uh, cover or anything or? <laughs> Not really. I mean, is this even a, like, I, I, I can't wait till I can actually talk more football. Really? <laughs> There's no actual, like, how can I talk football about this? I don't even know. Yeah. Quarterback's going to be. No, I, I know, I know. I, I you know, um, content's a little scarce during the summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's fine. Everybody take care of, of your significant others in your life and your lady friends and your men friends and, and reach out to people that you love. I mean, if we're ever going to talk about a time to do that more than any time, it's, it's this particular off season. And, and frankly, the number one thing I hear from Texan fans is like, okay, I'm stuck with my PSLs. I'll lose them if I don't pay for them, even though I don't really want to watch the team. But I miss my friends. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, come on and, and talk with me. Anytime. And where can uh, people find you on Twitter and, and, and all your work? Sure. Um, I you can find me at, on Twitter at Steph with a P H Stradley S T R A D L E Y. In my bio on Twitter, I have um, a link to my Chronicle work. I also have a link to my personal blog, and my Twitter feed is mostly 
uh, well, it's a combination of Texan stuff and just general interesting or whatever stuff that I happen to come across. I, my, my orientation to the world is people are fans of the teams that they like. And I like doing fan service and I like to get people good information. And once we get closer to the season, a lot of the things that I'm doing is like, you know, I put my feelings in escrow and I'm just saying, okay, this is what you need to look at from a fantasy football perspective and things like that. I like making people money with their fantasy teams. And the general point for the Texans is at this point, don't take anybody on the Texans offense and always look for um, waiver wire um, acquisitions for people facing the Texans. Once again, I really appreciate you uh, coming on with me today. Anytime. I would like to thank Stephanie Stradley so much for coming on the podcast. I had a great time. I hope that you will follow her work. I think she does fantastic work. I want to thank you for listening. Once again, we are part of the Built in Buffalo podcasting network. I am Charlie Gross. You can find me on Twitter at Charlie underscore Gross underscore. I also do a live YouTube show on Fridays with my co-host Izzy. I highly recommend you check out our YouTube channel as well. It's really awesome. I hope you will like, subscribe, tell a friend about the podcast if you like it. And of course, as always, Bill's Mafia, find a way to embrace your growth mindset and trust the process. Trust the process.